0: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians on the land on which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. We live and work on stolen land. Welcome to Uprise Radio. And this week uh, we don't have Jackson with us, but we do have a special guest. Um, we're going to talk about the a new book, which is from Interventions, a uh, company that we've publishing group that we've been talking to for the last couple of weeks. And this new book is called Stuff the Accord Pay Up and Workers' Resistance to the ALP ACTU Accord. And the author of the book, Liz Ross, um, is, thanks so much for joining us, Liz, is on the line. Oh,
1: pleasure. Yeah.
0: So Liz has been uh, active in the women's and gay liberation and socialist politics since 1972. She was a union delegate in the public service in the 80s and 90s, which is, you know, when a lot of the content of this book is coming about. Uh, and Liz has been involved in and written extensively about workers' struggles, including the Victorian Nurses' Strike and the BLF deregistration struggles in 1986. And you can check out some of her other books, Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, about the BLF and Revolution is for Us, the Left and Gay Liberation in Australia. And uh, we'll mention it towards the end of the show, but I I assume everyone's going to want to buy the book. And you can go to the Interventions website, you can go to Red Flag, or you can go to the New, New International Bookshop to pick yourself up a copy of the book. So Liz, thanks so much uh, for joining us and I'm really keen to have a, a chat about the Accord today and I guess looking at the, the history and the legacy of the Accord and I guess perhaps a little bit about what that means today. So perhaps we can start with people to kind of set the scene of you know, why why did the Accord come about? You know, why is it still in Today, you know, what were the kind of things that led up to the accord?
1: Well, the fundamental issue is class collaboration, and class collaboration inevitably means that workers pay a price, uh, and the bosses um, win the profits. So, fundamentally, that's what that's what it's about. And what we saw was that towards the end of the 1970s, with a liberal government who who won government after the uh, the coup against the the Whitlam Labor government. They had spent the entire time from 75 right through to the early 1980s trying to crush the union movement, uh, trying to get to basically do what Thatcher and Reagan were doing with neoliberalism in Britain and in America and that is smash the unions, increase the profits because at that time workers... In the early, the late 60s, early 70s, workers had been on the rise, and then actually won major gains, and bosses' profits had suffered as a result. They were determined to get their profits back.
0: Tapping further into that, I guess, when we came to that period, you know, there's really high union membership and industrial action and things like that. And you know, since the Accord, uh, union membership in Australia has dramatically decreased across, you know, almost universally across um, workplaces. And and I guess as well as militancy, you know, we we've lost lots of lots of issues. I guess collective bargaining, things like that. What kind of what you know, what impact of that would you attribute to the Accord as the Accord's legacy?
1: Well, the the everybody points to John Howard's era of government, which came after the Accord, and they point to the the dramatic decline in union membership during that period. But what they they neglect to to make a note of is the fact that there was an equally sharp decline in union membership uh, during during the Accord years. So, while Howard was, you know, the Howard years were responsible for a certain, you know, for continued de- de-unionisation, but the, the Accord years were, were, you know, responsible for for the initial and equal decline. So, you know, we, you've got to say um, when you look at the actual record, you've got the government, the bosses, and the ACTU destroyed two unions. They imposed massive fines that brought in and brought in more and more um, anti-union laws. So, when you couple that with a drop, affected drop in wages and conditions, um, increased casualisation, or and increased part time work for women then why would you be in a union? Because the union's doing nothing to defend you against all of those things. The union, in fact, or the union leadership, in fact, is complicit with the ACTU and the government and the employers to bring all of that about. Mm. So I, I think it's an open and shut case that the Accord was absolutely responsible for the destruction of the union of union you know of or well, not destruction but the um, deunionization I'll talk a bit later about a thing called enterprise bargaining which we all know and love today but uh, that was kind of the final straw in the whole process and that was that was responsible for um, a, a real level of, of de unionization there because of the very nature of a situation where it's just Enterprise by enterprise, it's the one group of workers against the employers in that enterprise. Um, it, it was a, it took a dreadful toll of the public sector, for example.
0: Perhaps before we get on to that, I wanted to talk a bit, you've got a chapter in your book about the accord and women. And I think, you know, in that it, it outlines, I guess, some of the initial things about what women were promised as part of the accord, and then, you know, what was the reality of that. Um, and you know some of the more um, female-dominated um, work workforces, like nurses, were played a really significant role in this time. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that chapter and what the accord meant for women.
1: Okay, well, I'll talk about the bad side first before we talk about the nurses and other women workers. So, one of the um, uh, one of the union organisers from uh, uh, the uh, it was then the MEWU, I think it's the, um, I can't remember where it's gone now, but I think it was um, municipal workers or somebody, something like that or miscellaneous workers. Anyway, um, she said uh, that that the unions, we've embraced capitalism even further to improve quality and to entrench the bosses' um Position. So basically, she said, "You know, that's what they've done." So you you had you had the promise of a thing called award restructuring, which was about changing the way that that work was done. And women were told there wouldn't be any women only jobs. There'd be no ghettos of low paid work in clerical jobs, for example. Everybody will be trained to use keyboards because this was in the period when when computerisation was happening, um, and we had people workers called data entry operators and they were all women and they were getting the lowest wages and the worst conditions Um, but anyway they everybody was going to be on the same level and so people's wages were going to to rise and the keyboard workers could be trained to new tasks Um, but what happened is that you had um, and this was only three years into the accord. You have women five times as likely to be living in poverty as men. The official unemployment rate for women was approximately 9.5%. For men, it was 7.5%. They made Women made up about 80% of hidden unemployment. So, you know, for women, the unemployment rates were really about 20%. And women were then... Um, earning an average of 67% of of male earnings, average weekly earnings. So uh, there were various things like um, equal opportunity bills brought in, there was affirmative action, there were a range of legislation brought in, but they had no teeth and they had no way of enforcing uh, that women got better jobs or anything like that. Um, And so And as she says, we um, Sue Jackson, one of the people in the council for advancement of equal pay, said that we've witnessed a redistribution from labour to capital. Profits were up forty three percent over from eighty three to eighty five. Real wages have fallen by about four hundred dollars an annum. Um, Commitment to social wage was little more than rhetoric, and uh, pension and you know benefits still remain. Be below the poverty line, and one of the one of the most damning um, figures, really, is that social wage. This this so-called social wage that the accord was going to deliver to workers in exchange for restraint in in actual wages. The social wage was Medicare, was uh, unemployment benefits, single parents benefits, a whole range of you know education health, all of those sorts of things. It was actually less in real terms in 85 than it was in 75, 76. So, you know, that, and the so the childcare, there was a promise of 20,000 new childcare places in 83. But very soon after um, Hawke got into power or the Labor Party got into power, there was a 10 million cut to childcare. So, and then... You know, even if the spending had been maintained, the number of places available would have only increased from 6 to 10% of all children who actually needed it. So you're not talking, even if the promises have been kept, you're not talking about a massive improvement um, for, for people. Uh, women didn't benefit from the, the cuts to taxation because most of the gain from the cuts to taxation were a percentage of, of the pay so that meant that it part, and women you know got got almost nothing. There was also the the huge promise of, of superannuation um, you know that everybody would get superannuation well women in were in jobs where they didn't about seventy five percent of women had no access to superannuation at all, and this is before you even get to the point where the employers have to give that 3% into the superannuation schemes because that, that's been a major scandal in the superannuation scheme right through to today, is that the employers simply don't pay it in. So women overall were getting, um, you know, more, worse and worse. Um, they, Joanne Schofield, another um, researcher, showed between 83 and 88, women barely made progress in either wages, hours, worked, or employment. Um, so their wages, um, went up, you know, one or 2%. The amount of, of women working part-time work increased. Um, so, so, and, you know, for example, just in one particular wage rise, uh, in the second half of 87, men's wages, um, initially rose 1.9%, women's by one5 And then in the second tranche of that particular increase, men went up by one6 and women by 0.8%. So, you know, it was, it, it was just one hit after another where, where people, you know, where, where women were hit by, by the, all the different things that, that were happening in the, um, got um, sort of, well, despite all of the tax cuts, despite all of these so-called benefits for women and for men for that matter, Um, the government actually increased the overall tax take from all workers while lowering that for business. So, you know, and just on employment, while the proportion of women increased, um, it only went up about 3% and it meant that part-time, you know, part-time workers, women in part-time work, basically increased and most of the increase in in women's employment was in part-time work. And then you've got the cuts to public spending. So, you know, and workers already, they were paying for the medi- for Medicare um, because they, they had to pay, levy, you know, increased levies, all that sort of stuff. So overall, all workers were impacted, but women workers were impacted more. And it does no good to men workers that, that women's wages are kept lower because that keeps a level at which the bosses are prepared to, you know, a lower level at which bosses are prepared to pay. So, overall, for, for women, the Accord was a disaster.
0: Oh, and there's actually quite a number of other big and small disputes that happened throughout the Accord years, and uh, you go into some detail about some of those through the book. And I think if, you know, like any of these um, points in history, we want to know about what happened, you know, in terms of uh, what the, the state was doing, but we, we want to learn about our... Um, history of the um, unions and how to fight back as well. And as we kind of think about that, I want to move into talking about, I guess, the legacy today and, you know, what we've heard about the idea of a second accord with Morrison and what that might look like. Um, so I was just going to play a short little clip and then that kind of outlines some of the things that Morrison is, is attempting to do. Um, so we can um, and have a chat after that. I think everybody's got
2: to put their their weapons down. And with that, the prime minister declared a temporary peace on an old battleground. It is a system that has retreated to tribalism, conflict and ideological posturing. Stand up for Industrial relations has long pitted worker against employer, unions against government. Indeed, the last Coalition Prime Minister to embark on major IR reform, John Howard, came unstuck over work choices. You
3: can't sack me,
2: really. Work choices scarred the Liberal Party, but not Scott Morrison, it seems. He became an MP in the Rudslide election of 2007. They've been caught in grooves for too long. He wants unions, big and small business, to devise improvements to the IR system, setting a tight September deadline it will become apparent very quickly if progress is to be made. IR Minister Christian Porter to chair working groups on five intractable issues, including award simplification, enterprise agreements, casuals, and compliance. The working groups will either reach something approaching a consensus on issues, or they
0: won't. The idea that a Liberal government is about to engage in industrial relations reform will send a chill down the spine of every Australian worker
2: union boss Sally McManus will be key to reaching consensus. Union bashing belongs in the past. That's where it should be. Her relationship with Christian Porter Best friends for now. might prove as influential as one of her ACTU predecessors. Bill Kelty reached a grand bargain with Bob Hawke and business leaders in the 1980s, trading extravagant wage demands for a social wage, Medicare and superannuation included. The so-called accord started a golden era of economic reform that the PM wants to emulate.
1: I think if we could get back to a simpler award system, then we would be starting to get on the right track.
2: Scott Morrison's first big play for the post-COVID period is as audacious as it is risky it'll be a real test of his pragmatism and his ability to control those in his party who might want to resume ideological warfare but if the opportunity is taken with union help it'll be one that defines the future of work for millions andrew probin abc news canberra
0: if the ideas that you've outlined about the accord under a labor government were you know, as as bad as what you've been we've been talking about, how could they possibly look under Morrison? I mean, that seems like an absolute nightmare for workers.
1: Well, I, I'll call bullshit on what um, Morrison and the rest of the Liberal Party uh, said, and I just want to quote something that Lindsay Tanner, who was a Labor Party frontbencher back in 1997, just after the the um, the Hawke Keating government was lost office. And he he was on a Four Corners program and he said, we have done so many things through enterprise bargaining through to competition policy, through to privatisation and deregulation that would be typically associated with a Liberal government, that it is difficult for the Liberals to differentiate themselves from what Labor in office did. And the the person on Four Corners said, or for you to differentiate yourself from them. And Mm. Hannah said, that's exactly right. Now, there is no difference between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party at the moment on, on the, um, both the approach to the accord but also the approach to uh, union, union sort of um, employer government processes. They they've, For all the rhetoric and everything like that, they will be just as happy with a rerun of the accord. But at the moment, what you're talking about is a situation where the actu has actually done nothing to to support workers rights in all of this time where's been the action around the uh, what's happening with the tertiary education sector uh with the NTU agreeing to wage cuts and condition cuts where's the actu been about pandemic leave they've been they've done nothing where where were the where, was the, where were the, the ACTU and the Australian Education Union in terms of demanding more safety for, for their members during the COVID epidemic, you know, the school's closure and all of that sort of stuff. So they've, they've, even though sometimes they've been calling for stuff and they've been saying, you know, oh, this should happen or that should happen, they've taken no action short of um, signing a petition to to say to some boss or something else, uh, what sh- you know what we should do, um, and of course they just ignore people like that. Uh, the only people who've actually made any progress at all are the United Workers Union with some of their warehouse workers, um, where they've gone on, they've actually gone on strike and said, well, you know this isn't good enough. We want we want something better, and they force the employers to come to the to the table and. And argue for for uh, for something. So the idea that you well, if you know if you know what the Accord actually delivered is cuts to workers' wages and conditions, cuts to um, union rights, um, the the entrenchment of anti-union laws. What on earth would suggest to you that a liberal government? with a track record that that it has, with a track record that Christian Porter has, that um, Scott Morrison has as Minister for Immigration, for example, who trampled over refugee rights. Why on earth do you think that sitting around a table with these people is actually going to deliver anything that is in workers' interests? It it just makes no sense whatsoever. And the fact that that Sally Morrison and Michelle O'Neill not Sally Morrison, Sally McManus. <laughs> Think that it's perfectly all right to be part of this collaboration with the employers and with the with the right-wing government. Uh, tells you volumes about, about the whole process and the fact that it cannot deliver anything that it really is seriously in workers' interests.
0: Mm. And I think just before we finish up, Liz, I think that it's interesting to think about. um, You know, I think workers are going to be coming out of this the COVID situation in a quite a vulnerable situation. You know, already lots of workplaces are restructuring things. You know, really against workers' um, interests. You know, think at retail places that they'll be they're closing things down and hiring warehouses and moving online. They can pay warehouse workers a lot less than what they can pay people in um, retail shops. You know, I mean, that's just an example. But I think across the board, it's going to be a very difficult time for workers, you know, coming out of this, trying to reassert themselves back into their workplace. But, and, you know, with if changes like a second accord do come about, like we're sort of hearing from Morrison and, and Sally McManus, what do you think workers can do to, to confront this? Because I, I'm not, I think like what you're indicating, I'm not confident that, unions are going to, by and large, play a leading role in being able to combat this. So, you know, perhaps it's workers within their workplaces or organising, you know, trying to push the unions to to play more of a leading role. What do you see as the kind of role that, and what can workers do to combat some of this?
1: Right. Well, what we've seen in um, both the Australian Education Union in Victoria and also in the National Tertiary Education Union around the country... Uh, workers who've got together and organized and, and defied the officials have have one other, you know, starting from a small group of people, have one other members of the union to a position opposed to what the officials are trying to impose on, on the workforce. And you've also seen the the UWU stand up behind you know in support of their members when their members have decided to go on strike or to take some other sort of action to walk out, um, that the union has been right behind them. But we're, we're starting from, like you say, a very uh, low position in terms of workers' rights and in terms of workers' organisations. And it's going to take small groups of people who are beavering away, talking to other people, starting to get some action, starting to get some small changes happening on their jobs. One of the, one of the most significant wins... That happened. Um, that helped. That helped build um, union strength within a workplace. With a case of one university um, admin worker who they they got a message about how they had to keep their desk clean and they weren't allowed to have any personal things on it. They had. They stood up and had a fight about that. And what that meant was that. And they defied the management and they won. So the next time, so they, what they built was this network of people who were prepared to fight. Then the next issue came up. They had a stronger presence in the, in the workplace and they, and they had a, a place where, where well, a, a union membership that understood, one, that you can fight and, two, that you can win because it's that lack of confidence as well. There's been so many defeats that so many workers feel like they can't win, that they haven't got the strength. And, okay, not everything will be small, not everything will be a win, but each step that you take, each time you, you struggle, then, then, you start, then you start to build that confidence, then you start to build those networks. You know, that slogan, dare to struggle, dare to win, isn't just a slogan. Um, it, it actually means something. It means that if you do struggle, then you can possibly win. It doesn't mean you will, but it means that you can. Um, if you don't, if you just step aside from the field of battle, you're never going to win. You've got to be in the battle all of the time. You've got to be fighting. You've got to be building those those um, contacts, and you've got to be building up the strength of your fellow workers, so that you build up the networks, you build up the strength, so that when you know each, and it can be something small, then you then that becomes you know, a feather in your cap if you win. So, you know, and then you've got a little bit more confidence. Then you've got a few more people around you. Then you've got people coming to you when something needs to needs to happen. And you start to organize and you get a bigger group. So it's that kind of thing. It's not going to be easy, it but it's the only way to win. Mm.
0: Well I think that's a really inspiring great note to leave things on today, Liz. And I really appreciate Uh, coming on and sharing um, some really great important history about um, workers struggles in Australia. And I just, I guess, message to people listening if they are inspired by this, what they should obviously join their union to start with. And perhaps, you know, even in the kind of strange times we're in, you could buy Liz and Sam's book and you might have three or four friends and you could start a little reading group together and, you know, via Zoom or online somehow. And, you know, from that, you're building up your history and, connections and you know that's a great way to start building no matter where you are you can at the moment connect and try to build those on the history and um you know the legacy of um, great activists before us so liz really appreciate coming on today and thanks a lot
1: great yeah it's been great being on and yes do the zoom buy the book for sure <laughs> but um, do the zoom things and Generally um, you know, keep in contact with people and keep keep
0: up
3: the fight.
1: Thanks,
3: Liz. Thank you. Here we go. For the fight auto workers who are twisted, tricked, and robbed. To the peasant in Guatemala in a sweatshop, got your job. And she can't feed a family on the pennies that she makes. Meanwhile, the crime rate's rising up and down the Great Lakes states Like vegetables left in the field, the signatures smell rotten On the contracts and the deeds that push the race down to the bottom as they load the rubber bullets, as they fire another round. I'm heading to the tear gas. Dig in, man, hold your ground. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the Union men and women standing up and standing strong. Help. That's right. Nos si, queremos juntos, vamos a ganar. Y'all hit him where it hurts, and bite the hand that feeds. You might get one to three, or probation and a fine. Well, I know where I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be right on that front line for Joe Hill and
1: Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time.